You're listening to the Go Global, Go Big podcast, powered by Globig. Hello, I'm your host, Anka Corbin, the founder and CEO of Globig. So today's top topic is post-colonialism and culture, with a focus primarily on doing business in India and other post-colonial countries. Our guest today is Julian Luthold, the executive producer of Get Global Expo. It's one of the world's top conferences focused on international expansion. Julian has extensive background in researching India, as well as consulting with companies that do business in India. Welcome, Julian, and thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start thank this you for podcast. Having me, Anka. Absolutely, let's start this podcast with you sharing how you became interested in this topic. It's a fascinating topic, and and a bit more about your background too. Well, thank you. So, uh, I first became interested in this when I was uh, actually studying abroad in India. Um, I was on a program. Um, that took me to Delhi, and uh, I expected to just learn about the country, uh, learn about some specific things that I was there to, to study uh, in the realm of uh, international security. And it ended up being a, an education in all kinds of things that had, I mean, I certainly learned a lot about that, but there were all kinds of things in addition to that that I learned that really surprised me. And um, that, that re- that's what sent me on my adventure to where I am today. Mm, it's exciting to hear. Um, let's talk about culture. What exactly is culture and, and why is it such an important part of this discussion? I think that, you know, there are a lot of different explanations for culture and what it is, lots of definitions. But to me, the simplest, most elegant is um, it's shared experience. Um, it's all the things that fill your world uh, incrementally built up over time. That, have, that inform your worldview uh, with the others around you. And, um, and that's what makes it distinct from other cultures. It's the stories your grandmother told you. It's the themes and the stories uh, that you hear growing up in school. It's, you know, the, the visual elements. All of these things amount to culture. Um, and it's certainly got so much to do with history. Uh, if your country's been repeatedly invaded, if you live in a place that's detached from other places. If, um, you know, and any of these things that have, you know, had a sort of uh, tectonic role in, in, in building uh, these memories and passing them down, that's, that all creates culture. And you can see that on the national level, you can see that on the regional level, you can see that inside companies and, um, and I think within relationships too. So. I think that applies at multiple levels. Well, since we're going to be talking about colonialism, let's also define what that is. So in your perspective, what is colonialism? Colonialism is the reaction to having been uh, colonized. Um, So if, for instance, uh, you know, you see this in, in all of these countries around the world that have had some sort of external uh, aggressor or oppressor or some external force, uh, you know, going into their environment and either, you know, either through the force of violence or economics or what have you, making that culture and that, that, that group of people obey and do what they want them to do for whatever reason. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's the colonists, uh, perspective on that. And then there's the, the, uh, host countries, uh, perspective on that. And, um, and what comes after that, of course, is post-colonialism, which is, um, what happens when they leave. And there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of feelings, a lot of, uh, literature. There's a lot of, you know, this, this process of trying to sometimes get back to what it was like before the external, force entered your your culture and your nation and your life and in most cases there aren't enough people alive to remember what that was like and so they reinvented um so there this creates this reaction to that experience that in, in some cases becomes like the dominant um cultural force and um and it, it produces you know, everything from art to the first reaction that someone has when you get off the plane and you start dealing with them. Interesting. And so speaking specifically about India, we're talking about the force of 
the Brits having come in and then leaving, correct? Yes. Um, so that, exactly. So the British having come in initially, and this is important, under the guise of a company, uh, a corporate, an actual corporation, um, it didn't, they didn't come in at first with, uh, you know, under the, the full, you know, crown or the Navy or anything like that. They, they came in um, as a company. And, um, and I think that that's important. I think that that's a really, really important detail for people to remember about India, that when you're coming in as a foreign entity, as a company, there's something about that that rings in their head. There's a little, there's something about that that is more impactful in India than I think in probably other countries, uh, such as perhaps in um, you know, South America or in, uh, in Africa, although I can't, I can't, I can't speak, you know, that broadly about them, but uh, there's something about that that's special to India. Mm, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about how that impacts the culture of business today, because I didn't know that, that they came in, in under the guise of a con company first, and then it obviously became much more than that. So that would make me assume if something like that happened, that every company was somewhat suspect, right? Is that what you're saying? I think that, you know, as a foreigner, you're, there's, there's an immediate uh, difference, of course, uh, you know, in, in the United States, if someone comes here and they've got an accent or, you know, it's, it, they have these visible cultural elements that are different from us, you know, we treat them a little bit differently, but in India that it's definitely the same. And if it's under, you know, if it's a business interaction, a lot of the times it, it really depends. Like if it's technology, um, that is something that's important um, because Indians uh, are really into tech. Uh, it's one of the biggest things on their, the balance of payments. Um, now I, I was reading that a while back that, you know, it actually has a visible effect on the balance of payments, the import of consumer tech. Um, so it's, it's a technology loving society. It's, it's, so they look at that, on, in, th through one lens, but, but, uh, you know, an, an extractive company or, um, something, you know, that, that has, uh, notes of anything that touches labor. Uh, that's another thing like, um, that, that would ring a bell. Uh, and, and certainly any company with a reputation of either being unfair or something like that, that's immediately going to set up, you know, hearts and minds to be looking out for the first thing, um, or at least to, you know, be much more watchful than they otherwise might be. That's very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about how business is impacted by some of these concerns and, and how businesses should approach it as well as maybe some examples of businesses that maybe didn't approach it very sensitively. Sure. So um, I think, you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled over Walmart um, going into India. Uh, you know, Walmart has been trying to get into India for a long time. And uh, I think it's about 97, 98% of the country that is um, still, you know, getting most of their, their essential goods by mom and pop shops called Kiranas. And um, Walmart had a plan to come in and uh, put in its stores, which would offer more selection to more people and um, offer training and all kinds of things that they explained would be beneficial, including th things along the, the supply chain and, and the logistical chain that would um, you know, solve some, some very real problems in India, like, like cold storage and refrigeration for uh, you know, foods and things like this. But, um, you know, Indian people read the New York Times as well. It's all online. They know the, you know, the trouble that Walmart's gotten into on several occasions and the general um, feeling that Americans have about it in, in many cases. So they were ready to look at this uh, foreign corporation that took over <laughs> or is reputed to have taken over towns and put people out of business and do all these things that, um, that, you know, they weren't there to see, they weren't there to, uh, witness that, 
you know, the positive side of Walmart, they weren't there to see, well, you know, during the financial crisis, low prices probably got people through that a lot easier. Um, but, but they did hear that reputation and it, they, you know, at, at least the politicians, I'm sure we're looking at this as a wonderful opportunity to either win votes by standing up against them or, uh, money against, you know, for, for campaign finance, anything, um, it, it was the, the bigger opportunity was not in working with Walmart. It was standing up against Walmart. And, um, and that made it very difficult for Walmart. Um, you know, and, and anyone that looks like they're dodging a rule or something like that. And sometimes, you know, it, companies get painted with this unnecessarily and in completely unwarranted ways. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a few where, you know, there was a, a uh, vague tax law or something like that, that all of a sudden they came running after them and, uh, and, and caused a, a many, many years of, of, of problems for, for a company. I think Vodafone um, ran into a lot of trouble in this, in this domain as well, but these are all big, big companies, right? Um, smaller companies where it matters most is um, just in how you deal with people. For instance, you know, if, if you're a medium or small company, uh, it's, it's the rare small company that goes into India, but if, if that's what you are and, and you're going into India, um, you know, if you, if you treat people uh, like you have stopped your own culture and, and you are listening to them and that they matter to you and you've left um, some of the assumptions at home, and, and as Americans, we do have some assumptions, um, you're much more likely to resonate with Indians, um, you know, to, to, to uh, basically come in with a clean, clear canvas and paint with their colors and learn their history and at least what they care about and build up your, um, you know, and paint with their colors. You, you, you take their language, you take their experience, you take their uh, way of doing things. And you don't need to make it your own. You don't need to dress in corte pajama or anything like that. And it'd be kind of funny if you did, but at least making the effort to open your mind to their way of life and get inside of their experience. I can't tell you how much respect is afforded uh, just from that. Um, I went to Jawaharlal Nehru University, which is sort of like the Georgetown of India. A lot of you know, uh, uh, people who enter the civil ser service um, in India they, they come from there. A lot of politicians are folks who go on to become politicians. They get their education there. And, um, and I didn't realize it at the time. I was just going there to learn. Uh, but when I spoke with civil servants later, when I spoke with politicians later, when I spoke with <clears throat> you know, journalists or whatever, after that, uh, the kind of respect uh, for, for going in and learning in their own environment was um, it was it was pretty big. It was very significant. I, I can't understate that. It was uh, or overstate it. It was it was a really smart move that I didn't know that I was making at the time. Not only for my own personal enrichment, but just to to show that I care about them and what they know and what they how they learn and their own experience. Mm -hmm. So so how it affects business is uh, it can either make people really receptive to you or it can make them. Uh, more likely to ignore you uh, or stand up to you or make a big fuss about you in the press. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of a routine matter that, that companies go into India expecting that this is a continent full of people that, or a subcontinent full of people that has just been waiting for them. Um, they've been hearing about it and there are all kinds of reasons why they should believe this. You know, it starts, you know, bubbling up in the press that they're getting, you know, some pizza company or that, you know, some or organic food might be coming or, uh, you know, a technology is coming to them. <clears throat> and there is a lot of genuine excitement. And then the doors open and people expect everyone to come rushing in or that, you know, when people do come rushing in, that they come back and that they enjoy it. And a lot of times they don't. And then it causes this rethink. Okay, well, what do we do wrong? And that's when you start seeing these innovations happen. So like with McDonald's, you saw uh, the McAlu Tiki, which is uh, an innovation on their burger. Of course, you don't have uh, beef um, being served 
in, in, in restaurants like that in India, um, there, there would be tremendous political backlash. And I'm pretty sure that that's exactly what happened, particularly in Mumbai. Uh, but, you know, you have to adjust and adjust in a way that's meaningful. And you see it in the way that, for instance, if you order Domino's pizza, Indians love Domino's. And uh, I've had it there. Let me tell you, it tastes absolutely nothing like Domino's in the United States. Um, it tastes, you know, they've got, uh, they've got Indian flavors. Um, Indians have a very particular palate. Um, when they travel, they go to Indian restaurants. It's, it's, uh, it's really kind of interesting that, you know, Indians travel and, and they don't want to, it's, it's, it's not very common for um, them to just dive into the local cuisine. The first thing that they'll start doing is like looking around for the Indian food. Gujaratis, when they try, there are whole travel packages where you've got uh, a cook that travels with you to cook you Indian food. Um, they, they like foreign cuisine, they do. You know, when an Italian restaurant opens up in, in Delhi, a lot of people are gonna go. But, um, but there, there, there is that, that fondness for their own flavor. And, um, and so that's get, that gets reflected in the food. And if you don't pay attention to that, either it won't resonate, and if, you, if there's any trace of condescension, if there's any trace of uh, disrespect, it's going to it's going to come out in the media and it's going to be ugly, and um, and this you know I mentioned technology a moment ago it, it applies to technology as well you know I, I think that you know, there, there were a couple of instances where uh, Uber recently I mean about two years ago I would have, if, if my memory serves they had some flare ups in Delhi now in the rest of the country things are going fine but in Delhi there were you know there are uh, you know, there's a legacy of being uh, attentive to violence on women and sexual assault, particularly after the Delhi rape case of, I think, 2011 or 2012, the Nirbhaya incident. And, um, you know, Uber, you know, this, there was a driver that assaulted um, a woman or was that assaulted a woman. And uh, it's, there was an investigation. And they found out that there was no background check on this driver, um, that I think that there was a license that they didn't get. Um, and what made this resonate in the news wasn't that something like this happened. It happens all the time in India. Um, and it gets reported all the time in India, particularly in places in and around Delhi, like in Haryana and things like that. It's that this foreign company that everyone would assume do, does these background checks in their own country, didn't do it there. And they felt like, you know, the, the, the nanosecond cascade of thoughts that led to a, a visceral reaction in Indians about this was they're not treating us the way that they treat themselves. They're, they're not giving us their best, or at least what they do everywhere else. Now, the question remains, you know, can they? Uh, data and backgrounds and things like that in India are, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why it's kept in paper that, you know, it's not digital. You can't readily access this stuff. Um, and getting a license for, for all the things that you need to do in India, that's extraordinarily difficult. And I think that you could, you know, point to any company and a lot of civil servants do um, and, and get them in hot water. But, and, and Indians recognize this, but the, the feeling was, and what dro drove the story in the news, in my view, was they're not treating us with the respect that they treat their own citizens, and that is unacceptable. So here's a, sort of a you know, circuitous walk through you know, how this affects business, but it's complex. And it's, it, it, there are these, trigger, these triggers in, in uh, people's thinking that if you go about these things wrong in India, uh, you're going to flip those triggers. Would you say that um, startups especially and really fast growing, fast moving and oftentimes American startups, they have this um, perspective that they can move fast and ask for forgiveness later and not necessarily go as deep into understanding culture and following regulations and, you know, doing the things that they probably should be because that's just how they do business. And it's somewhat of an American cowboyish perspective, but I was curious, have you seen that a lot? I know I have, and I was just wondering how 
that kind of feeds into this as well, right? It's this totally different approach to doing business and it kind of signals a lack of respect. I've seen that everywhere, really. I mean, even with American tech companies operating in America, um, I've got a lot of friends in DC that work on tech and the common, uh, the common refrain that you hear from them is tech companies, especially startups, talk to us early. You see this with drones now. They're like, look, talk to us early because we can, we can, uh, we don't, we're not here to just set rules that are uh, against you. We want to be helpful to you, but, um, <laughs> or at least take your, your needs into consideration when we are drafting policy. But if that, if that dialogue isn't there, you know, they're missing from that conversation and rules will be passed anyway. And there will be some interest group that has, you know, a better organization to uh, hear their, get their, get their point of view heard. Um, so I think that this is really not so much about foreign countries uh, as it is about, about the mentality of the tech community specifically. Um, that, that government is almost obsolete, that it ought to be replaced by technology. Um, I've heard those kinds of calls before, um, which I don't agree with. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'd want technology you know, doing regulation and, and trying to understand what I want <laughs> or what, what all groups need. Um, but but you know, there is that sort of perspective that, the, that government is um, significantly eroded in its quality to be replaced by technology or something more automated. And so when, when companies go into foreign countries, if they've got that perspective about the United States government, imagine what they've got uh, in their minds about other countries. That's right. And uh, their culture and their, and their culture, ways of doing everything. business. Right. It's, yeah. it's older or it's, it's not modernized enough. They haven't done, they're just not hip and they don't know what's going on. And so we're going to just bowl over them and bring our way of doing things to everyone else because of course it's in their best interest, right? And they, I think in many cases, kind of consider themselves as the future bringers. And right. um, you know, they repeat to themselves what uh, Steve Jobs would say, that, that, that people don't know what they want until they see it. And, and so they, they, I think abiding by that mentality, which I think drives a lot of innovation and does a lot of wonderful things, does not go well with policy or culture, <laughs> right? Well, I think it's especially obvious when, well, I see it in M&A activity. I see it in any sort of partnership activity. I see it in when these companies, and they're not always what I would consider startups. They just have that startup sort of mentality. And it's, it's especially sensitive and kind of glaring, if you will, when they go into in, in, in international markets. And it often causes them to stumble or maybe even fail completely. Agreed. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I mean, if you, for instance, you know, I, there are executives who uh, have arrest warrants out for them that have been arrested. Um, you know, here, you know, going against some rule, you're going to get slapped with, you know, a fine or something like that. Folks are getting arrested in countries that you don't want to be arrested in. You don't want to spend time in jail or prison in any of these countries that they're getting arrested in. And I think that that's very surprising to a lot of people. And it's certainly um, increasing the appeal of government affairs groups uh, in a lot of these countries. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some examples of some companies and even large companies such as um, Facebook that have made some pretty big errors in judgment and how they approached this and had they maybe not could have had a much, you know, better effect. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of, of Facebook in India, which is, um, you know, I, I can, I can talk more about India, uh, than other countries and certainly any other, uh, country, you know, going through a post-colonial process. Um, yeah, I think I think Facebook was pretty surprised um, at the reaction of of, in, of India to what they were proposing in um, Internet.org and then Free Basics. So let's go back and let's make sure our listeners know what that is and and how because I think the intentions were great, the approach not so much. Right, right. and um, yeah, so so. Internet.org and then Free Basics was a plan by Facebook to deliver 
um, a slimmed down internet that people could use in, uh, in emerging countries and developing countries that would um, make it free. It would, it would make the, pro the product, free, the internet free, but with limited options but and with Facebook at its core. Um, on the one hand, you know, it's great to have access to the internet that you don't have to pay for. On the other hand, a lot of countries reacted, or at least one country <laughs> reacted that I know of with, but wait, why are we giving up all of these other things? Uh, do we really want to set this precedent? And, um, and I think that that was very surprising to India. So, um, so yeah, slim down internet, uh, a, a, a small menu of sites. I think it was like 36 or 38 that people could go to for free and Facebook selected those. And this was a program that Facebook introduced to, uh, I think Malaysia and India and a, and a, a bunch of other countries to, uh, increase the, um, the usership of, of people in those countries with Facebook. And then what, what was the situation that happened? Why do you think India didn't respond as well to it? Because in, it sounds fine, right? Other than the fact that it's somewhat uh, limited, but it's free internet. Right. You know, it, it's free internet. Um, I think if a company did that, they made a, if, if a company like Facebook made a deal with a phone company here, um, to offer, you know, free internet with a small bunch of companies that people could access for free. No one would bat an eye. No one would think about it. It would probably be ignored. It could get some interesting press in some circles, but it wouldn't be a story. In India, um, where there is a lot of attention on how are we going to, uh, you know, what's going on in rural, rural areas, what's going on with the poor in India, um, how do we uh, increase education? How do we uh, increase literacy? How do we increase connectedness? Because there's a lot of internal migration in India. How do we, these are all issues that people care a lot about because most of India is very young. Um, I think it's half the country is under the age of 27. You know, that's, that's tremendous. So, so these are all potential Facebook users and because Facebook has limited operations and ability to you know access consumers in China India is the next best thing and um, and an important strategic move going into the future as these as the economy improves and as the uh, as the youth you know starts getting older and starts you know having more purchasing power so um, yeah you know it 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 came down to two competing issues in India. On the one hand, you know, you've got, uh, you've got this love of knowledge and learning and free information. India is still a country of ideas. Um, and it, you know, no disrespect to any other country, but to, to be able to say a country of ideas, um, you know, it's, I don't know if I can say that about a whole lot of countries these days where having ideas just for the sake of ideas, having something to express just for the sake of expression is valuable. And it, it is in India. If you, if you talk to anybody in India, they will give you ideas. You ask them what the meaning of life is, and it doesn't matter whether it's a, an auto rickshaw driver or you know, someone working at uh, the highest levels of you know, any, any corporation you want, or a politician. They will talk to you for hours about the meaning of life and what they think about it. Um, so anything that empowers that and facilitates that and brings people together and facilitates communication between folks that is more than just voice, you know, photos, um, you know, messages, talking to large groups of people at the same time, uh, it's going to be adored. Uh, that is a, a fundamentally, in my view, Indian uh, sort of program or, 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 or cluster of capabilities or yeah then on the other hand you've got this company that wants to put itself at the center of all of that and manage what people can and cannot see and um and does not do that in other countries or at least doesn't do that in its home country um, and it's a foreign country and you're right and it's they a have foreign no country. similarities with how they do business in other places yeah exactly so um 
So they're, they're looking then another group is, and, and often in the same person, you know, you would say, yeah, I love, I love the idea of them being able to go and deliver this and, and do it for free and help people communicate with each other. And I would love to be able to talk to, you know, if I'm a kiosk operator in Mumbai, I would love to be able to talk to my mom and dad back on the farm in Bihar, um, whatever. So, uh, you know, there's that. And then there's also the, the com other competing idea in the same person of, yeah, but it's a foreign company and they want to manage all of this and um, they're going to limit my options and what is, you know, and, and then the, 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 the conversation that explodes into the press is, you know, what kind of precedent does this set and do we really want this? Um, <clears throat> that was the essence of the conversation from my point of view uh, in India. What could they have done differently? How might this have been a different story if they would have just approached it a little bit? I don't know. It felt heavy-handed, and maybe that's just uh, my perspective. But how might they have done this differently? I think, um, <clears throat> and I say, I say this a lot, which is that India is unique um, in in many ways. Uh, yes, it is a developing country. Yes, there are more poor people in India than there are in the entirety of Africa. But it's also a country that takes its institutions very, very seriously. If you talk about voting in India, they, um, they express with pride that voting is free and fair. Um, there may be some, you know, inducements in certain parts of the country to go and get out and vote for a certain politician and giving out booze and televisions and things like this. But as, once you set foot inside that voting booth, you are safe and you can say what you want and, and it will be counted. And they're very proud of that. Um, so going in and assuming that you can go straight to the top and be friends with Modi and, um, and that that will transmit the policies down through the bureaucracy to making everything hunky-dory, even to the level of the consumer, I think is deeply mistaken. And I see it a lot. I mean, that was essentially from what I heard, part of the problem with Walmart, which is that they took a very government-focused strategy in places like, you know, you know and, and I know for sure that in a lot of other countries, that's probably, um, I won't say the right strategy, but certainly the most pragmatic or efficient strategy um, for companies. Um, you know, I would always say, yes, when hearts and minds do all of those things, uh, that's extremely important for the long term and probably even for the short term. In India, it's essential. You can't go straight to the top um, and, and expect things to get done. You have to go to the four corners of India. You've got to have them empower, you know, each of those four corner offices be able to, um, you know, hire their own and speak in the vernacular languages and, uh, and talk to, you know, the press in, in people's own tongue and, um, and give a sympathetic message to what people's experiences and what they want and really listen. Um, no matter what, if you're serious about India, at some point you're going to have to listen and you're going to have to listen very carefully. And it's better to do it at the beginning rather than, you know, year two or year three when you're getting beat up by the press and no one's buying your product and, you know, you've got regulators threatening to shut you down and all of that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's what Amazon did right. Um, they did a lot of listening and they focused on quality. They focused on um, giving people, and they're doing this now too, giving people the service that they hear about in the United States and making them feel like this foreign company is taking them very, very seriously and wants to give them the best. Um, so, uh, so yeah, if, 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 if I had been in the room uh, when a lot of these discussions would have been happening, I, I would have said, you know, you, you've really got to listen to what people want and what they feel and what they think about. I don't know how they would deliver free internet that with Facebook at the center of it to India. I think that that was a very difficult thing to try to pull off. Um, but I know for sure that listening first and starting slow and building from the ground up would have been the right way to start doing it. You know, one thought I had is, is could they have given them choice in that? It's like, all right, so here's a set of 
sites that we can get to you from phase one and allowed them to pick and then add to it from there and make Facebook a choice instead of that it all has to go through Facebook because my gut says that they would have been one of the choices anyway since they are so important versus it just being required, right? And that it all comes through that one pipe. I don't know. That's a very interesting proposition um, because when you when you walk by phone stores in India, sometimes uh, at least the last time I was there, I saw a couple of places where um, you know it was advertised that these are Facebook phones. Um, they're just regular phones, but you can access Facebook on them. But to communicate that yes, you can use Facebook on these phones is really important to selling the actual phone. <laughs> right, right. It's super attractive. It's a really important service and. It seems like they would have won the hearts and minds anyway versus feeling, you know, again, it goes to that being an oppressor or trying to control or trying to do something underhanded when in fact they really weren't. It really was intentionally, you know, to help, but I, it was in their best interest too. But my thinking is, is I that think they so would too. have benefited anyway. Agreed. Yeah. And, you know, when I think of what, um, what Facebook is doing, you know, giving free internet and the ability to connect people like that. I mean, if people want it, that's great, you know, right. Absolutely. Um, but it's just, it, it's one of these things. So yeah, I mean, to be perfectly explicit, there was nothing, I don't think that there was anything nefarious or weird or, you know, untoward that Facebook was doing. It's just the way that it hit up against, you know, the Indian mind and Indian experience. Um, yeah. And it might have triggered some sensitivities around things that had happened, as you were mentioning, in their history, right? It felt like, are we giving them too much power? Is this something that they could take advantage of? Probably not, but it felt like it could be a risk. Right. And, you know, the funny thing is that it, it, it wasn't about privacy. You know, the Edward Snowden revelations were met in India with a shrug. And actually, I had a really interesting conversation with um, uh, a leading advertising um, agency head in India about this, who's in my, his name is Santosh Desai. He's probably one of the most fascinating people to talk to about India and Indians. Um, and he said, Julian, the, the reason why is that we don't really have a culture of privacy, um, which I... I did not expect him to say, he said, yeah, I mean, if, if you open up a computer in an Indian household, you're going to have a bunch of people standing behind you looking at what you're doing and <laughs> nobody has any privacy. This is the idea of privacy is an, is an entirely uh, foreign construct or at least, you know, perhaps a Western one, but certainly not an Indian one. Um, there is no privacy in India. Everybody knows what everyone's doing. And uh, <laughs> you know, Indians themselves will tell you that they can be quite nosy. Um, you know, if you ride on a train and you're reading a newspaper and you fall asleep, the newspaper will make its rounds across the whole train and come back to you when, when the train stops. <laughs> um, there's no privacy in India. So that wasn't it. It was that this foreign company wanted to put itself at the center of what people were saying and doing and thinking and seeing in advertising and everything else. That's that's my that's my interpretation, my view. Right, and I think had they made it a choice, I think people would have still chosen them to be in the center. But it feels very different if it's your decision Agreed. to make. Right. Any other thoughts on how companies can do a better job? Are there some filters that they should apply before they make it? You know a deal or that they have negotiations or they think about doing business things that would be really tactical and really helpful for for people that are you know wanting to work with you know either a company in india or even someone from india right even someone maybe managing a team or it's not just a, a company right it can be those interactions with with people that are still on your team but they're they're from a different culture um well, I mean, my, my personal feeling about that um, is that, you know, when you're dealing with a person with a, a, a drastically different set of experiences, um, 
and, and, and from a different culture that has its own set of shared experiences, the best thing to do is, you know, start with being polite and build up from what they tell you. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, courtesy, um, that's probably the, the, the biggest thing that is shared across so many countries. Uh, uh, and, and I don't know of a single place where it's not appreciated. So starting with courtesy, and then as you get to know this person or this group or this culture, you build up from what they tell you and you can see what they do. Um, now, sometimes that means, uh, you know, spotting potentially poisonous behaviors. Um, you know, I just saw a lot of discussion in the China-focused world about the um, alleged snub of Obama getting off of the plane on his visit to the G20 summit. Uh, there was no staircase delivered out to him. He had to come out a, a, a special stair ramp in the back of the plane. Um, and, you know, China watchers noticed that this is very un-Chinese. Uh, you know, the, these kinds of things, there's so much keen attention to detail that the only possible explanation was that it was deliberate. But um, in a few blogs, there was especially legal blogs, they were talking about how, you know, when, when Chinese groups and Chinese businessmen, uh, business groups show you their behavior, it's best not to make excuses for them. Um, it's not because they didn't understand the contract. It's not because they didn't understand what they were doing. These are really smart people said this blog and I, and I can find it. Uh, it's, it's that they are testing you. And if you let them get away with it, um, you know, that will be the, the point, you know, that, that is going to be the, uh, the, that's going to color everything later on that they can, uh, do things, um, that they can get away with things that, you know, you wouldn't let other groups get away with and for, for cultural reasons. So sometimes there's, there is a spirit of being a little bit too culturally permissive. Um, so their advice in the China watching world is you can't get, a, get let them get, the, get away with that. Um, and what and does would, that mean? Like, would that mean calling them on it or expecting as, you know, letting them know that you expect a level of respect that they weren't showing. I'm just curious, how might you address that? My guess is that in business, um, it's one thing, and then in diplomacy, it's something else. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm I'm absolutely sure that this did not escape the team that was traveling with Obama, and that there was a, a very spirited discussion about what to do about that. And uh, Coolberry. He he came out in classic, you know, President Obama ways, right? He he played it down, didn't let it color anything else. Um, and the reason why he can do that is because he's the president of the United States, and and there's no mistaking that he is. Um, if if you're a company, I think um, potentially walking away, putting it on ice, showing them that uh, you they need you just as much as you need them or potentially that they need you more than you need them. Um, that there, there are options. If, if that would be my assumption though, I don't, I don't, I, I would never tell anyone that I'm a China expert. <laughs> well, I think, and again, every culture will be very different and you would have to think through what the best course of action would be. So if, if someone would like to learn more, about India or even just culture in general, are there some resources that you just love that you pay attention to all the time that you would be able to share? Not really. Um, it's, for me, where my education in this came from was going through the history, um, reading a lot of books about India and, um, and especially about post-colonialism, um, which is not an India-specific uh, genre of study, you know, when, when you, when you read about what post-colonialism is about and you read about the kinds of struggles and, uh, conversations that happen inside of countries about, um, about, you know, the reaction to the, the, the foreign power that came in and interacted in your country, uh, you start noticing things across all of them, like the way that they feel about their language, the way that they feel about, um, 
authority, the way that they feel about um, foreignness in general, even the way that they feel about people with uh, various colored skin, um, you know, white people or English speakers. Um, you know, in some cases, that's a linguistic thing uh, that, that the term for foreigners or something like that is tied up in that. And that informs a lot of the discussion about that in the newspapers and the magazines and, and television. So um, learning a little bit about what post-colonialism is. Um, as Americans, I don't think that we pay attention to it. I think that we play it down, even though we're a, a post-colonial country too, without a conversation about it. For instance, we don't have a conversation about why our villains have English accents, which I find very funny. Uh, it's, a, it's a funny thing to talk about, but the fact is, is that there's a reason why they have English accents. You know, you can't imagine Darth Vader with JFK's accent. Um, it sounds kind of funny. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? And, but and, the and imperial so language is a higher British accent, right? Or just... You know, you, you, or a you German one or a diehard, right. you know, right. that is, there, there is something about uh, that accent that conveys um, intelligence or, you know, you, you tack on an, an extra 10 IQ points. And so, you know, we have a lot of these feelings too. And, you know, you see that in a lot of things in the United States, like, you know, Disneyland or in Las Vegas. And it's not, you know, localized just to England or the UK, but a lot of the continent, um, you know, it has, it has a role to play in a lot of what we do, but we don't recognize it and we don't talk about it. Um, right. So I th my argument to Americans is you have a direct path to knowing the experience of all these countries, um, but you don't know about it. Uh, you don't know about your own post-colonialism in most cases. There's, there's not, a, you know, I can't remember the last time I saw an op-ed or some discussion in the New Republic or the Atlantic or any of these magazines about you know our British uh, heritage and what it left us with, and, and certainly not using the term post-colonialism. Um, that's for other countries, in our view. Why? I don't know. Uh, maybe it's because we we fought them and got them out ourselves, um, or it's it's hard for me to know. I, I, I just don't understand it. But it has its effects, and um, and so if we examine that in ourselves, and I started looking into this when I was in India. You know, why do I feel a lot of the, you know, I'm split because I felt a lot of the things deep down and in very, very subtle subconscious ways about the English that a lot of the Indians were feeling. So, but they looked at me and they saw someone who was vaguely English slash American. A lot of the times that's conflated a little bit. Um, and that, that that's an, a linguistic thing. And, um, and I'm assuming, yeah. I, I'm not really sure where that comes from, but, uh, but it's there. And, and so, you know, you get put on the side of the British or the foreigners or the, the foreign European. Um, and, uh, and, and it's an awkward place to be in because you can sympathize a lot with what they're saying. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know exactly what kind of resources you would go to, except for number one, reading about post-colonialism. Um, and there are a couple of books out there on Amazon with that in their title and, they're pretty good. And then I would say uh, learning about these cultures' histories and understanding how they feel about them. You know, knowing the, uh, the internal struggles of India and in pulling its country together in uniting all of these uh, various groups, which before the British were principalities, um, and how they forged a national identity. Um, you know, all of those things, it's, it's, it's really crucial to learn and how they, what, what role does Hinduism play? You know, I, there's a, a very talented marketer that I know in India. He said, Julian, the thing that people get wrong about India, what is it? And I said, well, and I, of course I started with post-colonialism, you know, not understanding what people immediately think of you when you arrive there. He said, no, he said, it's about religion. People constantly underestimate how religion plays into the lives of Indians, even when you know, they're not overtly religious. Um, so understanding where, you know, the Ramayana or the Bhagavad Gita or any of these, um, you know, tales inform Indian experience because, uh, you know, there are flashpoints that, that arouse a lot of those things. Certainly the, the Delhi rape um, and the questions that came after uh, were tied up in the Ramayana. Uh, Ram and Sita 
these were common names that you heard in the intellectual discussion post uh, Nirbhaya incident. And, um, and it prompted a reassessment and with very feminist tones um, to reinterpret and reexamine how they felt about the role of those stories in their lives. So starting with that and building up from there is probably the best way to go. And, you know, every country is different, but in India, it's, it's not just a country, it's a civilization and it's ancient. It takes a little time, <laughs> which is why I always say that you can't just, you can't understand India from far away. You got to get there and learn it and be around it. Go to weddings, go to, um, go to every public event that you can go to, uh, go to the Gurdwara. You, you have to, you have to really get yourself deep down in it. And, um, and build up from there and try to whatever extent that you can to get rid of your own perspective, your own frame of thoughts and, um, and build up with an Indian one. Mm, I think that's a wonderful place for us to go into the next question. And that's really, what have I not asked you that you would like to share? Is there anything that you would like to add to, you know, that's really important for our listeners to know? Well, um, I've talked a lot. And, uh, <laughs> um, and, and it's probably because I've been focusing so much on, um, you know, get global that, you know, I, I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this because culture is just one, you know, one thread of conversation that's going to be included in all of this. And I would say that, you know, culture is one thing, but there's all kinds of other things to be mindful of. Um, and you can learn about all of that at get global. Um, I think that, you know, this is a really important conversation to have because I don't really know where else it happens. Uh, this, this assessment of what, a, what, a, what it means to be an American operating in the world, um, which I think is going to be one of the things discussed at Get Global uh, that people are really excited about. But also, you know, how do you deal with foreign governments? Um, how do you deal with uh, foreign regulations? How do, you, how do you come up with good strategies? Um, how do you actually get these things done on the ground level? Those are going to be new conversations. And so I guess that's my plug. Come to Get Global. So how might they find out more about this? Where should they go to get the information that they need? Because we'll all be there. And you're right. The conversations are going to be absolutely worthwhile. Uh, they should go to getglobalexpo.com and sign up and make plans to, to be there. Um, and, you know, check out the agenda uh, we've got a couple more editions coming up in, in the next few weeks, which I think are going to be really uh, great surprises. Um, and and just immerse, uh, get get into it, talk to as many people as possible, and um, and develop the relationships. I, I, I think I think that's a common thread through what I've said today is that it's a lot of this is about relationships. There's there's a lot that you can learn from books, but that's only a, 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 a step one. It's, it's getting into people's lives and, and developing relationships that's really going to take you to the next level. And, and that's what we built Get Global to do. We could have written a book about you know, how to expand into foreign markets um, and do it successfully. But what we think was really needed was pulling everyone into the same room and saying, talk about it. Mm, wonderful. Yes, we absolutely want to see you at the Get Global Expo and Thank you, Julian, so very much for joining us today on the Go Global, Go Big podcast powered by Globig. Um, join us next time for another fantastic podcast on international expansion. This is Anka Corbin, hoping that you all go global, go big. <laughs>